G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. I hope you enjoy the ride. 1993, Chapter 18, Chile, Part 3. Sometime after midnight, a violent storm blew in from the un-Pacific Ocean. Within minutes, the gale had driven heavy rain against the exposed front panel of my tent, soaking it, along with the legs end of my sleeping bag that pressed against it. I tucked my wet, freezing feet underneath me in the driest corner of the tent, buried my head under my hoodie, and tried to get back to sleep. I hadn't seen the storm coming. I hadn't seen a weather forecast for weeks. But it was only fair, after the uncanny good luck I'd been given, that the universe should even things up. The early morning surf I'd hoped to have clearly wasn't going to happen, and today's trek back to the outside world and to my non-refundable flight from Santiago home to Sydney was going to be a much bigger challenge than I'd anticipated. I'd pushed the envelope pretty hard by surfing the whole previous day instead of trekking out as I'd planned. I'd pushed it still further by moving my camp here for the night in the hope of catching a few more waves this morning. The camp move was predicated on a gamble I'd find a different, more direct trail out to the one I'd followed in. The previous day, I'd seen seaweed gatherers on the beach with their horses. Presuming the cliff path I'd followed to my new campsite was too narrow and steep to bring horses down, I'd convinced myself there must be an alternative trail, inland off the long beach to the south. But, with my eyes focused on the perfect empty waves rolling down the point, I hadn't thought of asking the farmers how they'd ridden in, hadn't seen which way they'd left while I was surfing, and hadn't had time to search for the alternative trail when the weather had been fine. If the trail I imagined didn't exist, or if I couldn't find it this morning, I'd have to trek three sides of a square, some of it slippery and steep, to retrace my original path. The storm was complicating an already sketchy equation. Sleep was impossible. As the tent peg's grip on the sandy soil grew looser, the fly thrashed, the tent spasmed, and the freezing damp around my feet climbed further up my sleeping bag. It was time to surrender, to work with the lemons, and make lemonade. So I sat up, pulled on nearly all the clothes in my pack, and hung my fading torch from the lurching centre pole of the tent. With several hours to kill before first light, Here was the perfect opportunity to record the last few days in my diary before my memory was muddled by what would come next. These had been as great a few days as I could have imagined when I'd set out on this trip 11 months before. Thanks to one heroic tradie, I'd dodged the ban on surfers I hadn't even known about and got access to this idyllic privately owned corner of the coast. Here I'd surfed some of the most memorable ways of my life, all alone, in perfect weather, for three days. There was so much to alchemise into written words that I hadn't finished before the first hints of a daunting grey dawn started to show. It was time to get started. I packed my last few things and unzipped the front panel. The storm punched me in the face as I clambered outside. I hadn't brought a raincoat because I didn't own one. There's a great example of how not to go camping. So my three layers of clothes and I were drenched and freezing by the time I'd wrestled the sodden tent into a sad, rough bundle. I'd only brought the bare essentials on this trip, and with three days of food and water all but finished, I'd been counting on a light and easy load on the trek out. 
but with the sleeping bag, wetsuit, tent and pack, all close to maximum hydration, I'd be lugging well more than 20 kilograms for most of the day. My anxiety ramped up a notch as I swung the clumsy pack on my back, strapped the day pack to my chest, tucked my board under my right arm and set off south. The wind had been fierce at my campsite, but when I emerged from the lee of the headland, I discovered its full brutal force. Each savage gust tried to rip my surfboard free from my two-armed hug, wrenching my shoulders from their sockets and my spine from whatever it's attached to. After about a hundred metres, I'd been battered to a standstill. This wasn't going to work. What if the trail was a whole kilometre down the beach? What if I didn't find it? What if it didn't even exist? And I didn't have time to waste on a quest for what might be a figment of my imagination. Reluctantly, I saw it was better to cut my losses and accept that I have to walk three sides of the square. Retreating north to the headland, the storm attacked me from behind. I half-jogged like a drunkard as each gust tried to knock me off my feet. The thought of climbing up and along the steep narrow cliff trail in these conditions took my anxiety to new levels. But wait, perhaps there was another possibility. To my right, a steep 40 metre high sand dune had been buttressed against the headland. At the top of the dune, the thick pine forest began. Surely if I climbed up the dune and into the trees, then followed a line away from the sea and a little bit north, I'd eventually meet the track I'd walked in on three days before. This had been an even more direct route to the exit road than the path I'd been hoping to find to the south. And inside the forest, I'd escaped the worst of the wind. What wasn't to like? Decision made. But getting up the dune to the forest was even harder than walking down the beach. The steeply angled sand was fine and loosely packed, so that at each step my back leg slid down nearly as far as my front leg reached up. It was taking me five clumsy steps in my sodden jeans to make a metre of altitude, while the gale tore up the dune to wrench at my surfboard and backpack. Every time I lost my balance or got knocked to my knees, I lost another metre. It would have taken me just a few seconds to give up and slide back down to the beach, but I was driven on by the thought of the dangerous cliff trail that was the only alternative. After maintaining composure, just through a brutal half hour, I reached the top of the dune. Here I was rewarded with the discovery that the rise to the forest continued on an only slightly lesser slope through a combination of fine sand, tall grass and low scratchy scrub. This was even harder to traverse than the sand dune, and twice I arrived at crumbly high cliff edges that seemed to come out of nowhere. But surely, once I reached the forest, all would be well. At last I reached the embrace of the thick pine trees where I was protected from the wind. But the forest floor was littered with an epic waist-high tangle of fallen pine branches, thick and thin, that made every step a challenge. It would have been hard enough to clamber through with four limbs to engage, but having one arm occupied with a surfboard made it a misery. And after a couple of near twists and slips had threatened to send my nomadic right kneecap round the outside of my leg and leave me crippled in the forest, I had to calm the farm, take my packs off, find the bandage and knee guard I always wore when I surfed, drop my dax and anchor my kneecap in place. Then there was the mist. 
Immune to the gale howling outside, thick mist clung doggedly to the trees, reducing visibility to about 30 metres, obscuring any landmarks and making every tree look the same. Before long, I'd lost all sense of direction. Now, even if I'd wanted to head back down to the beach, I wasn't sure which way that was, and I knew it was more likely I'd find a cliff edge than the sand dune. I was trapped in the perfect which-way-forward-and-can't-go-back scenario. Brilliant. For a while I propped up my mood by putting melodies to the Banjo Patterson poems I'd been trying to learn by heart. But soon I relaxed and allowed myself to guess at how long it would be before my wolf-eaten remains were found. My communications to my parents that year via postcard and phone call had been sporadic at best, so it'd be at least eight weeks before they started to wonder where I was. The last contact they'd received from me would be the postcard I'd sent from Patagonia, 3,000 kilometres and two weeks ago. They'd eventually call the Chilean embassy, but I doubted anyone there would find the tradie who'd snuck me onto the property, or the three brothers I'd met on the beach two days before, or the seaweed farmers from yesterday. Even the last pension I'd stayed in, about 100 kilometres to the south, didn't know I'd come to this corner of the coast. Being savaged by a shark or run over by a bus seemed acceptable ways to die on this adventure, but getting swallowed by a forest seemed lame. And I was intrigued to find how easy it had been to create a situation where I could literally disappear without a trace. Perhaps this discovery might come in handy sometime in the future. Several times I got close to ditching my board and backpack in the forest, but the certainty that if I did, I'd never see them again forced me to battle on with them for just another few minutes. It had been about two hours since I'd packed up my camp, and about an hour that I'd been lost in the forest, when at last I came to something that might have been a man-made path. I followed it in what I guessed was the right direction, but it dissolved into yet another tangle of fallen, dead Blair Witch Project trees. Getting my hopes up, then crushed in consecutive minutes, brought me a lot closer to my last layer of mental calm. Bracing for even more frustration, but with no alternative, I followed the maybe path back in what I knew was the wrong direction, and found it joined a slightly more distinct trail. I followed this with zero optimism, to find that it led, after another few minutes, to what seemed to be the dusty road I'd walked in on. Hallelujah! Even better, the rain was on a rest break. And better again... Here was an old man scuffing up the hill who could direct me to the crossroads where the tradie had dropped me. We had a quick chat in Spanish about the weather, the beauty of the coast and its waves, and how it compared to Australia. Then he directed me down the hill he'd just climbed. Muchas gracias, buena suerte. I was finally on the way to Santiago and my flight across the Pacific. But five minutes later, the ocean, 
Then the beach I'd first camped on three days before came into view through the trees. The track was leading me directly downhill towards them, and I was back in twilight zone hell again. The old man must have thought I'd asked him for the way to the waves. Swearingly, I turned round and retraced my steps up the hill. I passed the small path where I'd escaped from the forest. A little further on, the trees grew thicker and darker, and as I moved through their silence, I thought I smelled cigarette smoke. Then I thought I heard voices. And there, on a sidetrack fifty metres through the trees, stood three grave-faced men, quietly talking. Each of them held a long axe, their business ends resting on the ground between their feet. And here's where this Stephen King story would find its gruesome end. It'd be years before erosion would free my spifflicated body from its shallow grave, or perhaps it'd be when they cleared the forest to make a new suburb in forty years' time. Anyways, I had no choice but to meet my end with dignity. Heaven knows what they must have thought as I approached them, soaked, scratched, fed up and filthy. But they kept their axes resting on the ground while I explained my situation. In Spanish, they promised me the way to the crossroads was the way the old man had told me. This didn't make sense. I pushed my schoolboy Spanish to the edge of its capacity to explain that I'd already tried that and it hadn't worked. I told them about the view of the beach through the trees. Three times I checked they understood that I'd finished surfing and was now looking for the way back to Santiago. Each time, they stoically insisted I had to go back down the hill. I thanked them and left, still certain they had it all wrong. Back I went on the sandy track through the trees, then down the hill, resigned to spending the rest of the day, and possibly eternity, walking this one dusty track in a dark prequel to The Truman Show. For the third time, I passed the spot where I'd escaped the forest and met the old man. Then I passed the view through the trees to the beach. I'd made my peace with the reality that I was going to miss my non-refundable 1400 US dollar flight when the road turned a sudden blind right-hand switchback and headed downhill to the south, the way I wanted to go. Praise the Lord above. Soon I reached the flat track lined with wildflowers that I'd walked in on a few days before. And there, on my right, I recognised the uphill shortcut I'd taken on the first day. So the switchback section of the road was the part I'd cut off with the shortcut, which explained why it had been unfamiliar and had seemed so wrong. It was a relief to know I wasn't going bonkers, but I felt bad about doubting the people who'd been helping me. Though heavy rain returned, I fairly skipped the last kilometre or so of the track back to where the trody had dropped me three days before. In the rain, not much building was getting done, but the few workers still there showed me where I could find drinkable water. I'd had none since last night's dinner, and some shelter from the weather in the rough skeleton of what they told me would soon be a new school. But my celebration at finally attaining the day's first objective came to an abrupt end when the workers told me there was little chance I'd find a ride out of the property that day. In heavy rain, the dirt access road turned to slippery orange mud and the hill sections became impassable. This was a possibility I hadn't anticipated when I'd extended my stay to surf the second point. Still, if push came to shove, I could trek the 10 k's or so of the access road in three to four hours. 
Once back in the outside world, I could walk until I hitched a ride or found a bus back to the highway. And despite all that had happened, it wasn't yet ten o'clock, so I had a couple of hours to rest, eat the last of my food and try to dry my stuff. I stripped down to my boardies in a singlet, hung my tent, towel, clothes, wetsuit and sleeping bag on the all-purpose rope I always carried, and brewed up some porridge and a nice cup of instant coffee. An hour or so later, despite the continuing rain, there came the sound, could I believe my ears, of a heavy truck lumbering toward the crossroad. As it appeared through the trees, I ran a muddy fifty metres to where it screeched to a halt. See, si, siguro, they were heading out in five minutes, and see, si, siguro, I could hitch a ride. Yeehaw! I threw my quarter-dry stuff together in record time, roped it to the empty trailer, and took the place I was offered in the middle of the cabin's bench seat. Vamanos, let's go. It wasn't long before I was wondering if my luck was good or bad. As we approached the long uphill section of the road, the driver worked up the momentum we'd need to complete the climb. Even before we reached the first bend, the truck was fishtailing slightly, but still the co-driver was muttering we needed more speed. Starting up the hill only slowed us a little. Approaching the first bend, a blind corner to the right, the driver took up the perfect position on the lip of the cliff for a full tilt head-on with anything coming the other way. As he cut the corner, we drifted towards the unbarried edge of the steep hill. The cabin lurched gently to the right as the rear wheels of the trailer flirted with the valley below. None of us had bothered with the seatbelts, so if we rolled into space, it'd be hard to tell whose lifeless limbs were whose. One corner down, ten more to go. Yikes. But eventually the laws of physics lost their patience. Somewhere not far from the top, a close series of bends caused us to lose too much speed. The tyres lost traction and we slewed off the road. The camber of the bend sucked the truck to the right and into the steeply angled ditch cut into the hill, not into the valley. The Lord be praised again. Despite the 45 degrees at which we were now parked, both drivers had a crack at powering back onto the road while I stood in the rain and tried to help with hand gestures but the right side wheels sunk to the axles and it was clear the truck was going to be there for the foreseeable future and probably beyond. With surprisingly little regret, they clearly didn't own the truck, the pilot and co-pilot decided to make the long muddy walk back down to the crossroads. But I was reluctant to surrender any of the progress I'd made towards Santiago. I asked if I could stay with the truck to wait for another ride if it came or trek to the exit gate if it didn't. They were fine with that as long as I locked up when I left, so I climbed into the cabin to escape the rain and review the situation with my left cheek on the bench seat and my right cheek on the passenger's door. I figured I could wait about an hour before I'd have to start walking, but until then I could wait to see if the rain cleared. For the third time that day I was shivering, so I stripped down to my boardies again, and when the clouds cleared a little later, I hung my sodden clothes and luggage on any part of the truck that could be used as a washing line. I'm writing my diary when I hear what sounds like a car coming up the long hill. I can't risk the car going past without seeing me, but there's no time to get dressed, so I clamber from the cabin in my boardies and run into the middle of the muddy road 
as a fully laden ute sideslips round the truck crash bend. There are three young blokes on the front seat and maybe four more clinging to the open tray. I'm flagging them down on the trickiest part of the hill, but heroically they stop and agree to give me a ride. While I gather my stuff and put on a few clothes, a couple of them collect my board and backpack from the truck and rope them to the tray. There's an edgy minute when I realise they could make off with all my stuff and leave me behind, but they don't. When, at last, I'm ready, the five of us who'll be riding in the tray get smothered in mud as we push the car to get restarted up the hill, then run to catch up and jump aboard from both sides. With the car slewing drunkenly, it was a not insignificant achievement that none of us slipped and fell under the back wheels. It's another white-knuckle ride. The rainy Friday has given the boys an early start to the weekend. We drift round each corner a little faster than we need, with everyone but me cheering the driver's great skill. We get back to the property entrance and wait for the guard to come and open the gate. I wonder if he'll wonder how a surfer is exiting the property when surfers have been banned for weeks, but he seems not to notice me or my surfboard. We drive for 20 minutes through the real-world farmland until we reach a crossroads that the boys reckon is my best chance of finding a bus or a lift that'll get me back to the highway that afternoon. Legends. But for over an hour, not a single vehicle passes by. I've just about decided which of the three directions I'll start walking when two tidily dressed young men emerge from the steamy haze of the evaporating rain. They're school teachers walking home for the weekend and they reckon I must have missed the afternoon bus by just a few minutes. The next one won't be until early the next morning, but they're sure, seguro, that I'll still get to Santiago in time for my flight. So Dario insists I stay with his family that night. It's only a six-kilometre walk to his small town, and we spend the next hour or so chatting about Chile, Australia, surfing, school teaching, and anything else that helps them practice their English. It would have been a memorable time in any context, but three days of solitude made me appreciate their company even more. And, as much as I tried to dissuade them, they refused to let me carry my gear. So I walked, light as a feather, while they took it in turns to carry my board and backpack. Seriously. Chile. Dario, his wife Maribel, and their two young children treat me to a wonderful dinner and the first warm shower and bed I'd known for some time. They dry my clothes, tent, sleeping bag and wetsuit in front of their log burner. If they ever hear or read this, mi casa es siempre su casa. My second last day in Chile began with breakfast at Dario and Maribel's, then a short walk to meet the early bus back to the main road. From there I took another bus to backtrack 60k south to a great little seaside village called Pichilemu. I'd come here with Sonara for the last days of our two-month 8,000km journey from Cusco, Peru, through Bolivia then through Chile from the Atacama Desert to Patagonia and back. Pichilemu is only 200 kilometres from Santiago, but it moves at an elegant horse-drawn cart pace, and the Hotel Chile España was a great place to hang out. A couple of times we hitched south to the now much more world-famous surf break Punta de Lobos. Here there were penguins, dolphins, seals, a small friendly Chilean beach crew on weekends, and great long-left waves on a cactus-lined point that stretched out to twin rock towers painted white by the seabirds. Sonara's flight back to Australia left five days before mine, 
and it was after she'd returned to Santiago to catch her flight that I'd set out for the solo surf camping expedition that ended when this chapter began. On my last afternoon in Pichilemu, a new big swell boomed in from the south. I'd been planning a lazy day to rest before my flight home, but I failed to resist the urge to hitch the 8Ks out to Punta de Lobos for one last look. The swell was huge, wind-blown and wild, and I was the only one there. I climbed down the cliff to get out of the wind with the seals and penguins sheltering on the rocks and pictured the perfect waves that would be breaking, unridden, over the next few days in front of where I'd pitched my tent. Hitching back to town, I was picked up by a bus filled with vivacious Chilean women on a hen's weekend. Are you still allowed to call it that? Their good-natured teasing and flirting was merciless, and I understood, after ten months in Latin America, to play along as if it was a salsa dance. Soon we reached Pichi Lemu, and they set their helpless male victim free. That last night at the Chile España, Simon, another surfer from Sydney, arrived on the late bus. He'd been following a similar path to mine down the west coast of South America, always just a few days behind. We'd stopped at many of the same places and met some of the same people, so we sat up swapping stories till way too late. We'd just called it a night at half past four when half a dozen Santiago teenagers returned from the town disco and wanted to ask us a hundred questions about surfing, Australia, and what our favourite part of South America was. So my last day in Chile began with no sleep. But on the five-hour bus trip to Santiago that morning, I must have nodded off for at least a few shakes of a lamb's tail. For when I arrived in town, I raced round like a lunatic. I deposited my board and backpack in the South Bus Station storage office, then took a bus across town to the North Bus Station, where the Peruvian alpaca jumper I'd lost on a bus in far north Chile a few weeks before was waiting to be collected. Then I raced downtown to collect more luggage I'd stored at the Pension, where Sonara and I had stayed ten days before. Then I taxied back to the South Bus Station to collect my board and backpack. From there I took another taxi to the bus that took me to the airport, where I repacked my boards and bags to be ready for the flight. After checking in with just a few minutes to spare, the last of my thousand bus rides in Central and South America took me 200 metres from the terminal to the airplane steps. Next stop, Easter Island. Someone get that man a beer. If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at the We're Only Here Once Instagram page. Search for James W underscore Woho at Instagram. You can find the text of the stories at jameswiley.com. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Big love and thanks to my family and friends without whom this wouldn't exist. And if you want to make a podcast, look up Rod Morrie at Sydney Podcast Studios. Thanks for dropping in. See ya. Yes,